Our text this morning is from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father, so how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, soften our hearts as we come to your word. Would the trials and troubles that we have faced over the last week be providentially used by you as your plow to cut deep furrows in the hard soil of our hearts that the seed of your word might be planted that much deeper. May your spirit provide the sunshine and the rain to grow up a crop of faith, hope, and love. Give us that wonderful hundredfold harvest of this crop, and may you receive the glory of this harvest. We pray these things in your son's name, and amen. I want to begin here with just a quick recap of where we are so we can remember where we've gone in John so far. Um, so a brief reminder of the, the basic outline of John. Remember, we've got two halves to this book. John 1 through 12, uh, we've described as the book of signs, where Jesus is performing all of these signs to confirm uh, to everyone who he is. And that book of signs, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 12, covers the first uh, three years of Jesus' career, with special attention then to the signs that he performed. Then the second half, John 13 to 21, we're calling the book of glory. It's covering the last week of Jesus' life where the glory of Jesus was finally revealed. Basically, the work that he's been doing, now he's explaining um, in these few days and unpacking the meaning of uh, what he has done in front of his disciples. So we're in that second half and towards the beginning of that second half in that book of glory. Um, and we're on the night that Jesus was betrayed. G Judas has just gone out to betray Jesus uh, in, the, in the previous chapter in 13. And, and after Judas goes out, then Jesus turns to his disciples and he has this long um, lecture where he's basically saying in as explicit words as he can, he's unpacking the meaning of what, what they have lived through over the last three years, that first half of the Gospel of John. And he, he takes three chapters to do this. Um, where So from 14, 15, and 16 is Jesus unpacking in this long kind of a mini sermon to his disciples, explain to them what all they have gone through, what they have seen. 
people refer to this section. Um, 14 through 15 or 14 through 16 is his explanation. And then in chapter 17, he then prays for his disciples. And that's all of chapter 17. But that section there is often described as the, the farewell discourse. It's Jesus getting ready to say goodbye. And he's, he's explaining the meaning of everything that has gone on. So right here where we are in the beginning of chapter 14, we're then at the beginning of that farewell discourse. He, is te- he teaches for the first three chapters, prays for his disciples in the fourth, and then in chapter 18, he's going to be arrested. Okay, So that kind of orients you and you understand where we are. And it's interesting that the farewell discourse where we are, at least in the Gospel of John, this is the longest sustained bit of just direct teaching from Jesus. It's a pretty long section uh, comparatively in John. Now, if you remember at the end of chapter 13, Jesus had just let them know that he was going away. Uh, Look at verse 33, chapter 13. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will see me, or you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So, So in the previous chapter, he says, I'm going away. And the disciples have picked up by now that when Jesus says, I'm going away, that's Jesus' way of saying, I'm going to be executed and die. Okay, it's, it's a nice way of putting what is about to happen to him on the cross. And the disciples have picked up that him saying, I'm going away, means he's about to be executed. So that makes sense then why at the beginning of chapter 14, he starts off with this phrase, let not your heart be troubled. Okay, so he's given them obviously very distressing news. And so he's now about to explain to them why it is that this should not distress them. Let not your heart be troubled. And this, it makes sense uh, given the news that he's given them because now he's going to start comforting them. And the comfort that he gives to his disciples, there's, there's kind of two points that I want to break this out in, in the comfort that he gives his disciples. The first bit of comfort is verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. There is such a thing, he says, as the resurrection. There is such a thing as heaven. There is such a thing as eternal life, okay? That is my father's house, and I'm going to get it ready for you. So this news that he's about to be executed, there's actually comfort in it because he's telling them about what happens after. And and what's interesting, though, is if you think about it um, in the context, Jesus is actually entering into a hotly debated theological argument of his time, right? You know, we've talked about a little bit before that you have at this time the Pharisees and the Sadducees that strongly disagree on this very subject. Uh, The Sadducees saying there is no resurrection, there is no eternal state, and the Pharisees saying, no, there is a bodily resurrection, there is an eternal inheritance that we have after death. And this has been fought about between the two. We know that Paul weighs in on this debate later on. Jesus is coming in in the middle of this, um, this argument. Whether is, is there a heaven, is there not? It's, it's interesting. I think we tend to think of the Pharisees as the theological conservatives and the Sadducees as the theological liberals, right? I think that's t- how we tend to interpret that debate. Pharisees must be the conservatives. They believe in heaven. Uh, the, the Sadducees are the liberals, they don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in, in a few things like that, which makes them sound like our modern-day theological liberals. But if you, if you dive into it a little bit, as far as we 
uh, understand, the root of the debate is that the, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch. They only accepted those first five books. They did not accept the rest of uh, the Bible, whereas the Pharisees accepted the rest of the Old Testament and then had a significant amount of intertestamental sort of tradition that had built up around how they believed we should worship. So the, Pharise or the Sadducees had this narrow little Bible. The, the Pharisees had a much larger Bible. And while when you look at the, the Pentateuch, when you look at the Torah, you can find the doctrine of the resurrection in there. But at the same time, it's not as explicit or developed as it is going to get later on, and especially into the time of the New Testament and in the, the intertestamental traditions that the Pharisees accumulated. It gets much more explicit. So because they had this much narrower text, they, they, they denied a bunch of other things. In, in one sense, you might look at the Sadducees as these like serious, serious conservatives because they were denying all of these other texts and they were saying, we're just sticking with this text uh, right here. So that's, that's the root of the debate between those two groups. And Jesus comes in and says, as far as this debate goes, the Pharisees are right. There is a resurrection. There is a heaven, and I'm going there to actually get things uh, ready. Um, he says, read it again. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. There is a place for you after your death. Jesus is going there. You will all go there. You will all go there. All the disciples are going to go there. And Jesus says, if this wasn't true... If, it, if heaven didn't exist, I would have told you, right? This debate is raging, and if the Sadducees were right, I would have told you. The truth is, the Pharisees are right. There is a heaven. There is a resurrection. There is a place of eternal rest for God's people. Um, one of the things I notice in Christian academic circles is there is a weird, almost kind of like embarrassment about the doctrine of the heaven, even within evangelical um, academics. There's, an almost, there's a kind of almost embarrassment about the doctrine of heaven. I think because it, it sounds so mythological, even if you believe it, you're a little bit sheepish about it because it feels kind of mythological. So people who are trying to be taken seriously um, academically Will, will often take pride in, in um, they'll, they'll believe that there's this corrective that they're exerting, which is um, quit worrying about um, heaven and the eternal state. The Christian life is far more about how we live now, and then that means that we need to be environmentalists or we need to be whatever because we're cared about this earth, and the doctrine of heaven is distracting us from, from our social justice here or something like that. And it, it, um, it plays nicely in certain academic circles when you, when you take that line. And while there are certain places where I think that there's some interesting observations they can make and some interesting, um, you know, there, there's some, some interesting exegesis that can be helpful, I think it's more important for us to keep in front of us that which Jesus intended to comfort us with, okay? He intended to, when you're in a moment of trial, when you're in a moment of a doubtful future, when you're in a moment where things are falling apart, Jesus tells us, let not your heart be troubled. And here is why, because you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. It's really important that we keep that in front of us, knowing that we actually have an eternal inheritance waiting for us. And that place of eternal life has been specifically prepared for you 
by the maker of the universe, right? It's the, the one who made you, who made your delights, who made your sensitivities, who made all of those things is the one that is decorating that place, who is preparing that room, who is getting that ready for you. You have that, that eternal reward waiting for you. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ has fully purchased your entrance into that world. And I think it's important that we keep this before us as our comfort, as our hope, and as our confident expectation. Because this promise was, like I pointed out, was intended by Jesus to be the hope that comforts you in times of distress. So let not your heart be troubled. Um, And I love it that Jesus' name for heaven here is my father's house. That's such a great way of putting it, because it's like the ultimate confirmation of the reality of heaven. And what I mean by that is if, if, I say, um, if I say, hey, have you heard of this new uh, restaurant in town? Because I want to tell you all about it. I had you know, something there last night. It was amazing. I want to tell you all about it. And your answer is, yeah, my dad owns it. That's my dad's restaurant. Okay, you, you've not, um, when, when, you, when you answer with that way, you've not just confirmed that you know something about it. You've basically just made yourself the ultimate authority on that question, right? And and really, the only answer there is I need to stop talking. Okay, I I I don't need to tell you any more about it. You need to start telling me about it because I don't know it at the level that you know it. Okay, um, the fact that he says this is my father's house, and 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 he says to his disciples, if it was any different, I would have told you because I've been there. I know about it. I would I would have told you. All right, he's he is the ultimate authority on heaven. Um, so I'm wondering, if, I'm wondering if this place called heaven exists or not. Oh, heaven, that's my dad's house, right? That's my dad's place. He made it. It's for you. I know all about it. Heaven is a real place, and it is our ultimate destination. So, so he had, I said that Jesus has two ways that he's going to comfort his disciples. First is the promise of this eternal state, which is the heavenly inheritance. And the second piece of Jesus' answer is that there is a way to get from here to there. I've told you about this place. I also want to tell you that there's a path to get you from here to there. Uh, there's a way to get you from here to that place of eternal blessing. And all the disciples know this way because the way is Jesus. He is the way because he is the truth and the life. He is the way. So you know how to get there because you know Jesus. I think that the title, The Way, is interesting. That that, That's the way he's going to describe himself because it, it seems like if you think about it, the Jewish faith was always a pilgrim faith. Do you notice that? Like when you, when you read through your Old Testament, it's always a pilgrim faith. They are, it seems like they're always on a road. They're always having to travel. The most important story for orienting the whole Jewish faith was the story of the Exodus, fleeing Egypt and wandering for 40 years in the desert, right? That's, that is the foundational story if you are a Jew. It's Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, wandering on the road for 40 years, going through the desert. And, and, and then you see built into their liturgy, I mean, as we have gone through the first half of the Gospel of John, and you see Jesus always showing up in Jerusalem for the various festivals, and we spent some time unpacking it a little bit, where you have these three pilgrim festivals each year, and the, and the, the, um, the duty is that you're supposed to, wherever you live, you're supposed to travel to Jerusalem 
for each of these festivals. So you have three times a year, you road trip to Jerusalem in order to um, partake in this festival. If you were a Jew, then your religion, your faith, was a road trip. It was, it was a nonstop road trip in one way or another. And all of the things that you think about when you're loading your car to go on family vacation or whatnot, it would have had a, a religious significance to them. When we get in the car to go on a drive, there's something that is um, religious about this. This is an expression of our faith. Um, and so that's why I say, I think that in the Jewish faith, it always had a road in it in one way or another. And yet, the strange thing is that Jesus is telling us that for all that traveling, the true path, the, 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 the true way, was not yet fully revealed. The, the road that they were supposed to take, all right, was, was closed. Up until this point, there was some sense in which it was not the way, it wasn't open yet. Remember the, the, the prophecy that introduced the ministry of John the Baptist, Think of, think of how this is um, described, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So, so this is Isaiah prophesying of the ministry of John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist's job to do? What is he coming to do? Isaiah, Isaiah says this, 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert. Okay, that was Jesus's, John is coming to announce that Jesus is the one who is going to open up that road, who is going to open up that way. And all of our time in the car that we've been wandering, now the road is open. The way is clear. And that way is Jesus. He is the way. Um, so Jesus is the way. And, um, oh, excuse me, I'm wrong page. So it's not fully open, I think, until the Messiah is revealed. And then also think about a few years later, after, after this time in John, when Saul is on the road to Damascus for his dramatic conversion, looking to persecute the Jews, what was the name of the group that he went to persecute? Look at Acts 9, starting verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The early church, the first thing, that, the first name that the early Christians had wasn't Christian. It's not um, until a couple of chapters later in Antioch that they become known as Christians. Before they were called Christians, they're called the way because they're named after the one who showed them the way. They're the ones who know the way. Um, once the church emerged, the thing that stood out about them, the thing that named them, was their confidence that they knew the way. They knew the way because they knew Jesus. I, I suspect, and going back to our earlier uh, section, I suspect that this is why you don't have a uh, doctrine of heaven in the Old Testament that is as fully developed as you do in the New Testament. This is why when the Sadducees say, we're just going to take the first five books of the Old Testament and we don't see a heaven and a resurrection here, I think you can see it there, but it's not nearly as clear as it gets later on. And, and I think that this is why, because when until Jesus comes and opens the way and shows them the way... The, the glimpse of heaven is dim, 
and it's a little bit hard to discern. But once Jesus comes, you know the way, and it all unfolds, and it all becomes very, very clear. It's not that heaven is not invented until the New Testament. It is that the way to heaven is not revealed until Jesus. It is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that the atonement for our sins was made once and for all. And And it is only through this perfect sacrifice that we can approach the Father. So when Jesus arrives, the way becomes clear and the doctrine of the resurrection and heaven becomes much clearer. Now, Moving forward a little bit, Jesus has just said that he is not just the way, but he says that he is the way to the Father. Look at, um, back to John 14, uh, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you go to the Father's house, you're going to the Father. Okay, And, And so he says, nobody goes to the Father except through me. So it's not just that he is the way, He's the way to the Father. That's where you're headed, is to the Father. And this claim inspires a request in the mind of Philip. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Okay, you're saying that you're the way, you're the way to the Father, so show us the Father, and, and then we're good. We'll get it, we'll understand, we'll believe everything. So he, it's a bit cheeky here. He says, you know, I've got one small favor to ask. Just show me the Father. But it, you can kind of understand it. It actually, it, it makes, a, it sounds a little bit um, demandy. But I think that you can kind of understand his request. Jesus has said, I'm the one that can get you to the Father. Um, and Philip seems to think, I think, that Jesus is saying uh, that he could get him to the Father the same way, say, a well-connected friend might say to you, I can get you tickets to that concert right? You know, Jesus is well connected with the Father. He has an access unlike ours. Um, and so we can leverage that to, to get access to the Father. He thinks that Jesus has unusual access to the Father. And throughout biblical history, uh, different Old Testament saints have been able to have unusual encounters with the glory of the Father. Moses did, right? Elijah did, Isaiah did. Um, So if Jesus has unusual access to the Father, then it seems pretty reasonable, I think, that the proof that Jesus has this unusual access would be to recreate an encounter with the Father similar to what these other patriarchs in the Old Testament had experienced. That does seem actually like a reasonable way to confirm that. Just give us one of those Mount Sinai glimpses, you know, that we can talk about, and then we'll know that this is all true. But Jesus answers Philip, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Why would you ask this? You, you don't understand that my relationship to the Father Jesus' answer is to basically say, you have misunderstood what has been happening right before your eyes for the past three years. You've you've misunderstood what was going on over these last three years. Simply reread the first half of the Gospel of John uh, in order to understand. Remember, the first half of the Gospel of John, we said, was the book of signs. This is where Jesus is performing sign after sign, and these signs are revealing the glory of God. And Jesus says to to, um, Philip now, everything that you have seen me doing, 
These were not just parlor tricks. This was the Father working in me to accomplish these things. You've been looking at me, and if you've been looking at me, then you've been looking at the Father because I've been revealing the Father to you all along. The Father is in the Son. Look at verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Everything you've seen has testified to the fact that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, Jesus is not doing what he does because he has unusual access uh, with the Father or he has unusual influence with the Father. He is of a completely different nature than us because he is in the Father and the Father is in him. He's describing the eternal triune life, the fact that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Okay, And the works that the Son does, he does because the Father dwells in him. The works that the disciples have seen him perform over the first half of the Gospel of John. So the Son does not have unusual access to the Father. The Son is the revelation of the Father. Hebrews says that the Son is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Or Paul says in Colossians that the Son is the image of the invisible God. It's interesting, like when you read through the Old Testament, and particularly in the Psalms, how often you see people pleading to be able to see the face of God, that God would, would um, shine his face, cause his face to shine, so that we could see that, because when God causes his face to shine, then we will be saved. Uh, you see that in Psalm 80. Uh, you see that in a whole bunch of different places. What we're seeing now is that the Son is the face of God. All right? He is the image of God revealed to us so that we can actually see the Father. Therefore, Jesus did not just have unusual access to the Father. He was the actual revelation of the Father. To see the Son is to see the revelation of the Father. But then, then here's the thing. Jesus takes this one more step. Right? He pushes this one more. It's not just that when you see me, you're seeing the Father. He, he goes one more step. And you see this turn again and again in Scripture. And I think this is an important thing to start to kind of get used to and look for in, in other places. And, and, and the turn is this, like the, the big principle looks like this. What the Son has from the Father, okay? The Son has all kinds of things from the Father. And what the Son has from the Father by his very nature, because he is the Son, okay? So this is innate to him. This is not something that, that he got at one point or, or earned or something like that. This is just innate to him. What the, what the Son has from the Father, in the gospel, the Son turns around and gives a gift of that to us. Okay, What the Son has from the Father, the Son turns around and gives as a gift to us. And we receive something that the Son has. Now, it's different in us because it comes as a gift from Him, not something that we have by eternal right. But, but what, what, we, what the Son has, he turns and he gives to us. Okay? So we're united by faith to the Son, and we describe that oftentimes as union with him. We're like put inside of the Son. And when we're put inside of the Son, we receive what the Son has in this sort of secondary sense. For instance, the Son has the Father as his Father by his very divine triune nature. The Son can say, the Father is my Father. And that's just how it has always been. It's his eternal right. But we get to call God our Father 
because we are adopted in as, as his children. Okay, We're put in the Son, and now the Father is our Father. So what the Son has from the Father by his nature, he gives to us as a gift. The Son um, lives inside the Father's perfect love. We've talked about this before, how that relationship between the Father and the Son is this perfect life of love. Well, we, being placed in the Son, now partake of that love, okay, as this gift that we receive as a part of our inheritance. The Son has life in himself, and we have life in him. We have an inheritance because we are in the Son. And we can go on and on like that. But the big principle I want to establish is that what the Son has by his very nature is given to us as a gracious gift. Um, and, And you can see this in all sorts of different places, but look at how it plays out here. Okay, I'm now in verses 12 through 14. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So the works that the Son does. Now remember, we've, he's been doing all these works through the first half of the gospel. The works that the Son does, he's handing over to us. He says, this this life that I've lived is now being handed over to you for you to live. The works that the Son does, he's handing to us. What the Son has by his very nature, he gives as a gift, a gracious gift to us. And what what is he given to us? What is he given to us when he gives us this? And and follow this bit closely because I know I'm going very um, swiftly. But there are three elements to his gift that he's giving to us here. First, he says that the obedient life of faith that he has just lived in front of them over the previous three years, he's giving the power to live that life to those that have received him by faith. Okay, That life that he has lived, he's giving that life and the power to live that life over to those who have received him by faith. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. So this life of obedience, this, this, uh, this life of obedience, this life of glory, is a life that he now gives over to us because we are in him when we receive him by faith. Um, second, the relationship between the Father and the Son, the love that the Father had for the Son, the way that the Father heard the Son and answered his prayers, um, that relationship will become ours, all right? That relationship, that tight relationship of communication becomes ours with the intention of giving glory to the Father, all right? You see, it's, it's just interesting, I think, when you look at the life of the Son and how he is in constant communion with his Father, I, I said this in the men's thing um, on, on Friday, but I, it strikes me how um, I think of prayer as necessary um, because of my distance from the Father, right? I, I, or at least I'm tempted uh, to think of that, that, that I have to pray in order to try to get myself close to the Father in some way. But is there anyone out there who, um, who had a closer and more intuitive relationship with the Father than the Son. And yet the prayer life of Jesus um, outpaces mine, outshines mine in all kinds of ways. He, he is in constant prayer. What did he need to talk about? What was, what was he trying to find out? What was he trying uh, to ask for that he did not already have? 
And yet he's in constant prayer. He's leaving his disciples. You go to sleep. I'm just going to go pray for a little while. He, he has this constant communication with the Father because he is the Father's Son. And he says here that that, that, um, that life that he had, he's giving it to you. He's giving it to you. Um, look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He wants you to be in this constant life of prayer with him. And, and this is the great thing, is that, that that life of prayer and you living in that world is the way that God glorifies himself. God, God is glorified when we're living in that kind of relationship with him. And that's what we're being brought into in the gospel. And then, and then the third point is an observation that combines all of these other things together. So, so walk, I'll walk carefully through this. Think back over the section and notice this. Okay, think back over everything we've covered here and think about this. What is Jesus' argument for why we should believe that he knows the way to heaven? What is his argument for why, why we should believe he knows the way to heaven? He argues that if his disciples had watched his life, they should have been able to see the glory of the Father in him, such that it should have been obvious who his father was and where his home was. Okay, if you paid attention through the book of signs, through the first 12 chapters of John, and saw the kind of life that he lived, you would look at him and you would say, I know who he is, and I can see who his father is and where his father's house is. And I should know that just from looking at him and watching the kind of life that he lives. So now, Jesus says that the glory that worked in him by his very nature is a glory that he, by a gift, is giving to those that believe in him, us, right? That is being given to us. It means, um, well, or let, let me phrase this as a question then. That, that glory is revealed to us. So my question would be then, what does the revelation of that glory in us mean? Okay? That glory was in, in Jesus, and those watching him should have seen it and understood it. And he says he's giving that glory to us now. What does that glory in us mean? It means that we know the way to heaven. Okay? Looking at him, you know he knows how to get to heaven. And he says, now I'm taking that and I'm giving it to you, which means people looking at you, living that life that he has given to you, should be able to see that you know the way to heaven you know where you're going, all right? And you have that, inter that eternal inheritance ahead of you. There's a reason why the first name for the early church was The Way, okay? Everybody looked around them and they said, what are we gonna call them? We're gonna call them The Way. <laughs> why, why did they call them The Way? Even though they lived in intense persecution and constant martyrdom, their hearts were not troubled because their eyes were on their eternal inheritance and they knew the way. And it was obvious to anybody watching them, they knew the way. They knew where they were going. They were not troubled by the persecution. All right, that's what it looks like when you receive Christ by faith. You know the way. You know your inheritance and you live like you know where you're going. You live like you know your father has a house for you. He is preparing a house for you. And the, and the last thing that I, I want to observe is that we need to remember that knowing the way is simply a matter of knowing a person, Jesus Christ. Knowing a way is just a matter of knowing the person, uh, Jesus Christ. 
Think of it like, like this. Um, we often name our roads based on where they take you, right? Um, we call the Pullman Highway the Pullman Highway because it takes you to Pullman. This is weird, um, but people in Pullman don't call it the Pullman Highway. <laughs> they call it the Moscow Highway. They're, they're over in Washington, they're weird that way, right? Um, it's probably all the pot shops, right? <laughs> But you, you, you name the road based on where it's taking you. It's the Pullman Highway because it's going to Pullman. It's the Troy Highway because it's going uh, to Troy. We name the road based on where it is taking you. So we are on the Jesus Road, right? We're on the Jesus Road. Um, you, this road takes you to Jesus. He is the way. He's the name of the road, okay? And why is he the name of the road? Because he's taking you to Jesus. That's where this road goes. But there is something different about this road. Okay, this road is, is quite different. It's going to Jesus. You have that as your internal inheritance, right? That's where it's going. Um, but on the Jesus road, the end is not just the end. It's also with you all the way, right? And, and in terms of roads, that's a pretty crazy thing, right? You're, you're driving on this long drive with your, your family, and the kids from the back are constantly yelling. We always know the question they're answering, which is, are we there yet? When you're on the Jesus road, the answer is complicated. We're there. We're, we're not there yet, but yes, we're there. We're, we're already there because the end is always with you. The end is always with you all the way along that road because the end is simply the person, Jesus Christ. The end of the road is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Eternal life with him in his Father's house with many rooms prepared for you. But the end of the road is also with you at every turn in the road, at every trial, at every hardship, at every winding turn along the way. Jesus Christ is not just the distant conclusion of this drive. He is also right there present with you. And I say this because on a long journey, a long journey taking you through places that you have never, never gone before, it's hard to have clear directions, isn't it? It's hard to know where you're going, or what, what turn you should be making. It's hard to know your way through. But in this life, we always know the way. We always know the way because the way is actually present right in front of you. And, it's, and, and I think you need to constantly remind yourself of this because we use um, being lost. We, we use being confused we use being not able to see what's going on or to understand what's going on. We use that regularly as an excuse to despair, right? We use that as an excuse to fall into sin, to feel kind of helpless and lost because you can't see what you're supposed to be doing. You can't see what, um, you can't see the path that you're supposed to take. When we get in that situation, almost always, it, there is a very simple prayer that just simply needs to be prayed, which is to drop, and, and actually, when I say drop, what I mean is confess, right? Confess these doubts because they're sins, and the only way you get rid of them is by actually confessing them and repenting from it. Confess the feeling of lostness that you have as simply doubts and fix your eyes on Christ. And you might not know, you might not know what's going to happen three turns from now. Right? You, you might not know what's around the next mountain, but you know the end, and that end is present right in front of you. And it's simply a matter of keeping your eyes fixed on this one who has given you all of this. 
right? Who's giving you all this. And when your eyes are fixed on him, then that's when his command here to let not your heart be troubled. And that is a command, right? Let not your heart be troubled. That suddenly becomes achievable. It becomes doable because by grace, you see your inheritance, you know where you're going, and the trouble drops. And the great thing about that is when you become the kind of person who can, in the midst of incredible persecution and difficulty and trial and hardship, who can have that kind of untroubled heart because your eye is so fixed on Christ, you also become the kind of person where God's glory shines in you such that the people around you say, we should just call him the way because he appears to know it, right? He appears to know where he's going. He has that kind of confidence and the gospel spreads when we live like that. So let not your heart be troubled. You have an eternal inheritance and you know the way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and give us the faith that we need to keep our eyes fixed on your Son, that we might stay unwavering on the path of of faithfulness. Father, we thank you that a place is prepared for us. May that hope be a comfort for us in the challenges before us. And Father, in this passage, we see a glory that you intend to have in the lives of believers. Father, we ask that you would truly put your glory on display in our lives. May it be obvious to the world by the glory that you shine in our lives that we know you and that we know the way to your house. And lastly, Father, we see specifically in this passage that this glory should be a work in our prayer lives, in the things that we ask of you. Would you bless us in the week to come with lives of devoted prayer? And so we begin that commitment uh, to prayer now as we pray to you the words that your son taught us to pray, saying... I know we have a number of visitors or new folks and just want to remind you that it's our custom to welcome you, to join us, to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you are baptized and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're most welcome to join with us this morning. Jesus is king, but frequently we import our ideas of kingship into what the Bible teaches about kingship. Some of our ideas are correct, but some of them may not be. So for example, one of the Hebrew words that is translated to reign or rule as king is the word mashal. But that word is also translated in the Old Testament to speak a proverb, to tell a riddle or a parable or a dark saying. So what is Jesus doing right now? In 1 Corinthians 15, it says he must reign until he has put all of his enemies beneath his feet. But how does he reign? He reigns as a wise king, the greater Solomon. But that means he's reigning in such a way as to teach us wisdom. He's reigning in such a way as to teach the whole world wisdom. And what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. So think about all your favorite stories, the best stories. They are full of tension, conflict, mystery, and then at the climax, there is wonderful resolution, what literary critics call denouement. All of the loose ends are explained, pulled together. Everything is made right. And so we have already been told what the goal of this whole story is. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus has the task as king of leading his church to complete victory, 
through the salvation of the whole world. But his assignment from the Father is to do it in such a way as to leave no doubt that it was him. His job is to lead us to victory such that everyone says, Jesus did it. Jesus did it all. This means that our path to complete victory and the salvation of the world has to be full of tension and mystery. Otherwise, we would be tempted to take some of the credit for ourselves. So, the story of the reign of Christ will be the greatest story ever told. But it's a proverb, a riddle, a parable. But you already know the punchline. So look to Jesus in faith now. Look to your wise king who does all things well and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, thank you that you have sent your son Jesus in order to grasp hold of us and this whole world and bring it home to you. We thank you and we praise you for that end, even now in the middle of the story. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You've been reminded this morning that you know the way to the Father. You are the people of the way because you know the way. And so your hearts must not be troubled. And because your hearts are not troubled, let me give you one very practical application. You all need to get to know each other. You've got time. You're going to heaven. So, very practically, there's a bunch of new people here this morning. There's new students, people here visiting from out of town. So, make a point. Your heart's not troubled. You got time. You got joy. So look around you. Meet somebody new. A reminder, there's also coffee and refreshments downstairs in the basement. Your heart is not troubled. You know the way. So meet someone new. Go with his blessing now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all God's people said...